Hello, I'm Curtis Bowers, and this is Agenda Weekly. Thank you so much for joining me again this week. I really appreciate it. Hope you've had a good week. Hope your summer is going well and you're able to stay cool if you're in a place that's hot like we are. <laughs> but uh, today we've got a special interview with David McIlvaney. He was on about four months ago, and I wanted him to come back on and update us on what's going on financially in the markets and with the economies of the world and America. So I'm going to be interviewing him, and we're going to talk about surviving the dissolving dollar. We all know the dollar is losing more and more of its value every day that goes by, every month, every year. If we look back in our lives, we go, oh my goodness, when I was young, a dollar bought this much and now it buys this much. So we see that's happening, and he's going to talk about ways to preserve your wealth and what it looks like is going to be happening in the fall and just things to plan for and prepare for. But I think it'll be a benefit to you and I think it'll be a blessing to just have someone that that's all they do is study the economy and try to see it realistically, not just looking for all the bad things, but looking for little glimmers of things that might be a positive and stuff. He's very good at that. That's one thing I've always appreciated about David is he's not just the gloom and doomer. Some people say, oh, he's not realistically seeing how bad things are. No, he sees how bad things are, but he knows over the frame of history, a lot of times there's golden opportunities inside of the bad things that are happening. And so anyway, we just want to get into that today with you, and I hope it'll be a blessing to you. But thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Those that are subscribers, thank you. We appreciate your support greatly. Maybe we don't mention it as often as we should, but we really appreciate you. You're a great blessing to us. But I think you'll enjoy this interview. David McIlvaney, thank you so much for joining me again today. Good to be with you. Thank you for the invite. Oh, you're welcome. Uh, it's been a few months since we've spoken, and I just wanted to get an update from you on some of the things you've noticed as you're studying the financial situation of America and the world and, and, and individual people, but just what's some of the things that's been going on over the last few months that we should be aware of? You know, I think we spoke three, four months ago, and some trends have remained the same. Uh, specifically, if you look at the global economy, things have continued to stay in sort of a rut. Uh, very, very difficult at this point to see how the Chinese are going to revive their economy. Uh, they've introduced between three and four trillion dollars, the equivalent of three and four trillion dollars into their economy to try to stimulate growth, and it's not happening. So they are one of the the largest uh, marginal sources of growth in the global economy, and, and it's just not being particularly helpful at this point. Europe is further into recession, and Germany is kind of leading that that uh, at that edge. And so if you look at the global economy as a whole, there's not much that could be said uh, of a real positive note. The U.S. economy, there's certainly indicators um, that we now have 14 months in a row of the leading economic indicators suggesting that recession is, is on its way to us. We don't have it yet. We don't have it yet. We still have a very tight labor market. We still have, um, you know, the most recent uh, small business optimism numbers were, were, were surprisingly strong. And the consumer sentiment numbers out of the University of Michigan were also exceptionally strong. And so I think what you're beginning to see is, you know, inflation has faded a bit here in the U.S. 
and people still have their jobs. So there's less concern here in the US. But where is growth coming from? That's a separate story. And um, in some respects, you could say the labor market is about as good as it gets. Uh, unemployment of 3.6%. And you know you could argue perhaps that it's at an inflection point. In fact, Federal Reserve policy, our central bank has basically said the only way we're going to truly tame inflation is if we see some shift in the labor market. In other words, they would actually like to see an increase in unemployment because things are too tight. There's too many jobs, right? So if you can wrap your mind around that, one objective that they have is to increase the unemployment number so that there's not as much inflation. I think one of the things they're underestimating is the power of energy. In the most recent CPI numbers, we had energy down year over year, depending on the category of energy you're talking about, between 26 and 38%. So of course, inflation numbers are going to look a lot better if your energy inputs are, are down. Um, things like food and shelter, they're still in the 5 to 8% range, increasing yet again year over year. But you've got this massive input uh, from, from energy, which has helped bring the CPI, that is the consumer price index, down. So I, I think you can look at it from multiple perspectives. The global economy is not in a great place. And you see it reflected in many of your industrial commodities. Yes, you see it reflected in the oil price. One of the reasons why the oil price is where it is is because on a global basis, demand, and particularly China, it's weak. It's weak. So the U.S. economy is kind of the you know city on a shining hill. We have not gone into recession yet. I would argue that by the time we get to October, September, October, November, we are in recession. And, and that's partially because the yield curve has been inverted uh, for as long as it has, um, close to a year. And that yield curve inversion for an economist is, is one of the almost guaranteed ways of saying, are we going to go into recession? Um, yield curve inversion is basically when interest rates in the short term, three month, one year, two year interest rates are higher than interest rates um, going out five, 10, 20, 30 years. So that, that inversion, it's not supposed to be that way. It's not supposed to be that way. The longer you borrow money, the more, the higher the interest rate should be. And that, that kind of makes sense because there's lots of things that can happen in one year and in five years, and who knows what happens in 20 years, right? So right. you pay a little bit more for the money that you borrow if it's long-term money. That's not the case today. Yield curve inversion has been one of those things that has been a consistent telltale for recession that is coming. So we would say, yeah, by the time we get to October, maybe it is stretched into 2024, but I would say that you know, you've got a good two, three months of what we have today, but yield curve inversion, the, the the leading economic indicators, that's 14 months in a row of, of them marking out that yes, we're marching towards recession here. It means that the US will basically be catching down to the global economy. Now, the financial system is a totally different animal, totally different animal. You're talking about stocks and bonds, which have gone wild, you know, wasn't about the time we talked, March was was when we had the debacles with um, Silicon Valley Bank and and a number of banks. Um, which, by the way, if 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 any of your listeners are interested, we're happy to, to provide um, a bank rating. Uh, just lets you know kind of the, the safety, how well your bank is managed, the kinds of risks that they're taking, the portfolio risks, and things of that nature. But when that happened in March, Curtis. The government stepped in with a tremendous amount of liquidity, and so the the, the FHLB, Federal Home Loan Bank, 
brought in between six and eight hundred billion dollars. And then the treasury balance sheet expanded again by $400 billion. So we had between one and one and a quarter trillion dollars come into the financial system between March, April, May, between sort of in that 90 day window. So it really, it's no surprise at all that we see stock soaring again, that we see some interest rates starting to come down. The risk is sort of, there is no risk. We're not worried anymore. And a part of that is just a function of how much liquidity is in the financial system. When there's a lot of liquidity, people feel like it's time to have a picnic. Like, hey, let's, you know, let's get together. This is great. It's never been better. So I think one of the things to keep in mind is that the price action in the stock market is, is somewhat deceptive, although it's positive. You know, NASDAQ's now up 42% for the year. You got to keep in mind some of the biggest companies some of the biggest companies are seeing their sales and revenue decline 20, 30, 40%. In the case of Micron Technologies, I think the revenue was down for the quarter 96%. You'd think, well, I mean, surely their share price is suffering. No, they're up 30% this year. So, so share prices are moving up, even while fundamentals are deteriorating. And there has been a number of instances in the past, Curtis, where if you have that dynamic where fundamentals are deteriorating through the summer months, yet share prices are moving up, that's when you get into a fall dynamic where you can have a, a major catastrophe in terms of, of market performance. We had the same thing in, in, in the summer of 2008. Um, you could go back to uh, the year 2000, even 1987. 1987, you might remember stock market sold up 22% in a day. Pretty volatile. Well, same dynamic. That was the fall of 87. That summer, things looked fantastic. Fundamentals were on the decline. In other words, company performance was was not doing really well. Meanwhile, their share price was was moving higher. And then it broke. It broke in the fall. So I think when you look at the confluence of um, the recessionary indicators saying we're about 90 days out here in the U.S., and then overvaluation returning almost like an echo bubble. We we had the everything bubble in 2001 and early 2002. Of course, it was a disaster in the stock market through most of 2020, 2022 rather. Um, and we've had a great rally here in 2023. Bear market rally, in my opinion. Bear market rally, in my opinion. In other words, there, there, is, there is quite a bit of risk in the stock market. It's complicated, isn't it? You, you yeah. look at it. Global economy, there's one theme. The U.S. domestic economy, there's another. The financial system, it's operating on a different basis. So um, lots, to, lots, lots to talk about. It seems like over the last several years, the strength of America wasn't because America was strong. It was because everyone else is so weak and there's so much uncertainty in the world. And so America looks good in that uh, perspective. And so, yeah, I, th I, yeah, I don't, I just you look around and like you said, it appears like everything's fine, but you can see it's not. There's little indicators to someone with their eyes open. Robert Kiyosaki, a guy I like who wrote the Rich Dad, Poor Dad, uh, which has a lot of good wisdom in there. Um, he thinks that coming up here in uh, next month in August, when the BRICS meet there in Johannesburg, that that could really, if they really do have something that's gold backed or anything like that, it could really start to then make the dollar pay more like it should for being a fiat currency that's not really worth anything. Um, but anyway, what, tell, tell us a little bit about that BRICS 
uh, the, the meeting that they're going to have, but just in general, what that is, what it, what they're trying to do with that and how that could affect us um, if, if that really does have any kind of real backing behind it. You know, there's there's an old phrase that, you know, your your desires lead to thoughts, your your thoughts lead to actions, your actions lead to habits, and your habits lead to destiny. And I, and I think what you have is sort of the inception of of desire and thought within the BRICS nations. There's not a lot that has become habit or or has really structurally shifted in the world of of currency and currency settlement. The U.S. dollar is the world's reserve currency. It's been a huge benefit to us. We've been able to get away with a lot of things that you wouldn't be able to get away with otherwise. Like it's an incredibly privileged position and it's something that's highly consequential if we lose. I mean, we're talking about if we lose reserve currency status, just assume that your lifestyle, whether you're middle class, upper middle class, takes a 25 to 30% haircut. Or to look at that in another way, everything that you, you, you consume today costs... 30 to 40% more tomorrow, right? It, so we have been the beneficiaries of a system that came out of 1944, the Bretton Woods Agreement, Harry Dexter White. He argued against John Maynard Keynes that it should be US-centric and not some sort of a global amalgamation. Uh, and we won. And it's been to our benefit. That began to get chipped away in 1971 when we basically ended Bretton Woods, came off the gold standard, and went on an entirely fiat system, right? But we still had momentum and we still had the, 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 the sort of incumbent advantage, and that's what we maintain today. But we can lose it. What you see with the BRICS is that desire leading to thoughts. Now, what we haven't seen is it's, it has yet to translate into actions habits and a new destiny okay and so we're, we're somewhere in the early stages the contention amongst the BRIC nations the BRICS was um, an acronym put together by uh, Jim O'Neill from Goldman Sachs uh, 20 years ago um, to, and he basically was saying these are the countries that have the greatest growth profiles ahead of them today they're predominantly growing because there's demand for their commodities but tomorrow they're going to be able to diversify and it's not going to be just commodity exports but it'll be services there'll be a, a more developed economy and so look look for them look for their growth trajectories brazil is the b russia india china south africa okay so those are your those are your brics countries huge commodity producers today to some degree, they have been been developing, but they sit back and they say to themselves, collectively, we are responsible for more of the global economic activity, what, what's known as GDP, gross domestic product. We're responsible for more economic activity as a group than the U.S. So why is it that the U.S. dollar is seeing all of the transactions globally for our currencies, for, for our commodities, for our goods and services, we're selling it, but we have to sell it in U.S. dollars. Why don't we sell it in Brazilian real? Why don't we sell it in Indian rupee? Why don't we sell it in, in Chinese yuan? And they don't because that's not the way the plumbing is set. Like the, the, the global house has a certain set of plumbing in it, and the plumbing is designed for the flow of U.S. dollars. So trade settlement, transactions which occur from one country to the other, all of these global financial institutions have to have dollars on deposit for one country to buy another country's products. They're settling their transactions in U.S. dollars. 
And again, it's a huge benefit to us because there's holders of dollars that have nothing to do with the US economy. There's holders of dollars that have nothing to do with you buying a gallon of milk or, or, or a box of cereal here in the US. Somebody in India, a financial institution in India has to hold dollars. The Saudi Arabians have to hold dollars because oil is transacted in dollars, right? Benefits, big benefits to being yeah. the, the, you know, sort of the, the, in, that, in that reserve currency status. So the desire is there. The thought is there. The action is just beginning to be taken. And there's only been sort of a marginal shift. The first shift was uh, probably 15 years ago, where you began to see some erosion of that trade settlement, where it, we, I think we were north of 72% of all global trade was priced in dollars. And now it's just above 60%. There's been some erosion over the last 15 to 20 years, but we're still solidly in, in play. We, we Most of global trade is still priced in US dollars. Now, but something that has changed dramatically, and this is where actions leading to habits and habits leading to destiny, this is in motion. This is in motion. Global central banks have said, we do not have to keep our currency reserves in US dollars. What if we chose instead to have currency reserves with some of our other trade partners? So for instance, if you're buying and selling things with Japan, why don't you have some of your currency reserves in yen? And if you step back a little bit further and say, okay, this has nothing to do with our transactions. We just want our reserves in something solid. Is it a surprise that global central banks have been buying a ton of gold? You know, the story of 2021, 2022, 2023, record purchases by central banks of gold. I've watched that too over the last several years. And it appears that, I mean, a banker above all people too, they're, they have their finger on the pulse of what's going on. And I mean, they, they, because they have a reason to be, that's all they deal with is, is the money. And so, yeah, that's to me, and that's what's shocking to me that gold hasn't gone up more because you go, when, when those people are doing that, that should be a signal to everyone. It's time to do that. If those banks go, get, get, get gold, get gold, get rid of this, these paper currencies, because we, we know those are just unstable. And just with inflation, they're just losing every single day that goes by, losing value. So I guess this was a question I was going to ask later, but I think here's a good spot, is they are very good at manipulating the price of gold and silver. I remember in 2000, when they were down so low, I was like, how do they do this for 20 years? They keep it pressed down. And then finally they lose control and it exploded from, you know, silver was like 350 ounce or whatever and shot up to 40 or something or whatever. But it's just like somehow something's controlled there. Talk about that. <laughs> yep. So you've got various people, various entities in the market that are involved, either buying or selling. And, you know, if you go back to that period of time where you thought gold was just too cheap, $250, $300 an ounce, um, that was a period of time where central banks fell in love with the idea of moving from hard assets into paper assets. And so they were net sellers of gold from about the mid 90s till 2009. 2009 was the first year in close to two decades that you had the net purchases and sales of, of central bank uh, central banks on the positive side. 
up to that point, they've been liquidators. They've been feeding the market, just dumping, dumping, dumping. They're like, we're not getting any interest on this. Why don't we turn it into the IOUs of another country? That way we can collect interest on the money, right? So they downgraded their portfolio so that they could collect some interest on it, right? They just, they were getting a little greedy. They wanted to get creative. They looked at it as a dead asset and they wanted interest on their money. So that was the trend through the 90s up to 2009. 2009, that trend shifted. Now, instead of central banks really being a part of the big price suppression construct, because they're they're dumping hundreds of tons every year, hundreds of tons, millions of ounces onto the market every year. And so who else is in the market other than the central banks? Again, if central banks are the big dogs, you've got jewelry, which would be like consumers who, and, and this is you know, India, China, massive amounts of gold that comes off the market for, for that kind of industrial, that kind of, that kind of uh, consumption. Then the third, the third main category, so central banks, um, your, 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 your jewelry producers or your consumers, if you will, and investors, right? And investors come in about three shapes and sizes. Investors, you've got hedge funds and traders. That hedge fund trader crowd, very fickle. Prices up, let's buy some more. Prices down, let's sell it short. So they're they're just following a momentum game, and and they tend to add volatility to any trend. So if the, if the price is down, they're going to even pressure it further, and they've got incentive to make money because you can make money on any asset when it's moving in one direction or the other. So they're shorting gold and making money shorting gold because it's already in, the, in a downtrend. How did it get started? Probably central banks liquidating, and then they just jump on the bandwagon. That's only one group within the investor within the investor group. You also have large institutions like pension funds and insurance companies and family offices. These would be the wealthiest families in the country and in the world. And when they buy gold, they buy it on the basis of a thesis. It could be anything like this. I'll give you an example of a thesis. We see that inflation is sticky. It's not going away anytime soon. Interest rates will be on the rise. That's going to pressure financial assets and the value of stocks and bonds. We think that both to cover our inflation risk and to cover our financial market risk, we should start accumulating ounces. Now, on the basis of that thesis, the large institution like an, like an insurance company, a pension fund, or a family office looks at that and says, we're not in a hurry. We're willing to buy it when everyone else is freaking out. We have this idea, this thesis, and if we're right, if we're right, then it's going to make sense to own a good bit of this asset. So every time gold gets shellacked and it's down $50, $100, silver's down three bucks, they're quietly buying. They're patient, they're quiet, they're buying according to a thesis. So you've got like the, the gunslinging hedge funds who are like, Prices are going up, let's make some money. Prices are going down, let's make some money. That's one version of the investor, which adds to volatility. The large institution, very different, but also in that investor category. And they have been an aggressive buyer over the last 24 months and continue to be, and continue to be. The, the, last, the last bit of the investor community is the average Joe, the average Susie, you know, looking and saying, I don't know what tomorrow holds, but I don't like having everything in my local bank, or I don't like having everything in the stock market. Maybe I should own a few ounces of gold and silver. And, and when the little guy comes in, they don't necessarily have a developed thesis like the family office does or the institution does. 
they see it, maybe they're afraid of something. Maybe there's been something, whether it's, you know, the Russians invade Ukraine. Lo and behold, that slice of the retail investor, oh, we better own gold, right? So there's an emotional reaction with the individual retail investor. And so those are those are sort of three parts within the investor crowd. And then you've got, again, the the um, the jewelry consumers, which are a huge piece, and then the central bankers. So you can look at those those component parts within the metals market. And, and there's a lot of volatility in terms of demand. It just depends on what's on people's minds. Like today, not as many investors are thinking, I need to own gold if you're here in the U.S. Why? Look, we've got we've, the stock market's up. Good. Happy days are here again. This is fantastic. Real estate prices are still booming. Who cares? Let's and and what they don't realize is 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 some of the backdrop issues. Like we 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 real estate is booming, but can it boom if interest rates stay higher for longer? We 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 now have this week seven percent is your thirty year fixed rate mortgage compared to a year and a half ago less than three. And we have not seen a material shift in the price of single family homes, right? We have seen a big shift in commercial real estate, down 20%. Goldman Sachs thinks it'll drop another 20 to 40%. So we've already seen an impact from higher rates in commercial real estate. Residential hasn't been changed hardly at all. No, I know is it, it, should, is it, it should because just over those 18 months you talked about, when your mortgage is 2.75 or seven, your payment is over double for the 30 year period. I mean, that to me, when I looked at the number, I was showing my boys that I go, look how interest rates affect things. I go right now today, if you were to buy the exact same house today that you could have bought just two years ago or under two years ago, and it was the same price, but now you're gonna pay twice the payment monthly to get that same home. And like you said, it hasn't hardly squashed it yet, but it's got to at some point because then there's nobody. The only reason those home prices were so high is because interest rates were so low. So the average Joe realized, man, I can afford a really yeah. nice house yeah. that I normally couldn't afford. But man, that's, that's incredible. And I was shocked that too. When you see the payment on something like, man, that's not very much at all. So, but that's changed. And as you talked about last time, I remember you talked about the cycles of interest rates going up or going down. And I think you said they're usually like, like 22 year periods or more or whatever, that once a trend starts, it's gonna be going for that. Um, and you could tell me that one, one other thing I was gonna say is the average Joe that you were talking about a second ago that says, I think I need a few ounces. I think they're more in touch with reality than the other groups, even though they might not be doing it for a calculated thing like the banks, oh, it's at this price, so we gotta buy this. But they're they're in tune with reality because they live in reality. That average guy lives in a real town where he sees, how come all these people aren't working? Yeah, they say there's no unemployment, but I see so many people out of work. I see, you know, different things going on. Um, and so you're, I think, and then we see the real prices at the store they can tell us it's 5% or 8%, but we go, man, I'm struggling to pay my bills. Uh, and I wasn't last year. <laughs> so, so something's happened. So anyway, I, th I think those people are the heart of the thing. And when those people start to awaken and they start pushing, purchasing, even though it's not huge amounts like the banks, 
them all together, those people all together will buy far more than the banks are going to buy when you have millions of people start to go, I need some of that. Um, and I think we've seen that happen in the past. Well, and so this is what this is one of the things that it makes me incredibly bullish about gold and silver. Central banks are this sort of base of of buying and their increased purchases are in part because, you know, look, when when Russia invaded Ukraine, the the US Treasury Department basically said, okay, well, there's $300 billion worth of money that the Russians were holding with us. We're just going to keep it. You can't have it back. Right. So we we stole $300 billion worth of Russian money. And the global central bank community said, well, how can we really trust that the US is going to honor its obligation as banker to the world? And the answer is no. So the increase in purchases in gold by central banks has been even more aggressive after the Russians invaded Ukraine because they're reacting to our seizure of Russian assets and saying, we got to have some control of our money and our destiny, right? So, so the central bank piece is really solid today. We, we have the investor base and, and again, the family office, institutional money, that is moving into gold now. We have not seen a, a groundswell of investor purchases here in the US. In fact, if you use the, the exchange traded funds as, as a proxy for interest in gold, um, GLD, SLV, they trade like stocks, they're, they're a decent proxy. We've seen net liquidations over the last 24 months of about 324 tons basically 27% of the entire amount in those in those products has been liquidated by US investors. So US investors say, oh, I'd rather own stocks. Stocks are on the rise. I don't need gold anymore, right? Meanwhile, people who are looking at things that I, I do think that there's a difference between your average investor and someone who is sort of thoughtfully engaged with what's going on in the world. Yeah, because it, it's, I think there is a thoughtful tier of investors who'd say, I, I don't know that I like what I see in the stock market. I understand prices are going up, but are they going up for the right reasons? Are, are we in a new growth trend? Is this a new bull market? Or is this just an extension of something that was overdone, overcooked already? And I think, you know, I think you're right. I think there's a lot of people who have pretty good instincts and they need to trust their instincts when it comes to risk mitigation, risk management, owning gold as a way of offsetting some of the things that are just kind of wonky in the world today. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, um, I, I think you're right. We have yet to see, we have yet to see that groundswell of investors come in. That is what I think will take gold prices to the three, four, $5,000 number because you already have. So, so in economics, they call it supply elasticity, or in this case, inelasticity. If I was, if I was creating hula hoops, and demand for hula hoops. This is a you know small circle, right? Just like a gold ounce. It's, it's it happens to be roughly the different size, but but same same configuration. So a hula hoop demand for hula hoops is going on through the roof. And so Curtis, you and I, we we say we got to run an extra shift at our hula hoop factory, and we'll just we'll just create more hula hoops. If there's demand, we'll create supply. You can't do that with gold. If demand increases. It takes five, 10 years to get a new mine permitted. The, the EPA makes it almost impossible here in the United States to go dig in the dirt and find the stuff. And I think what's also going to help make this thing become a reality, because it should, one is a couple of things. One, so many little shows like Agenda Weekly 
they're starting to be all over the country because people realized years ago, you can't trust the, the big media machine because they're all parodying the same lines. And so little things like Agenda Weekly, and I know there's so many that are growing now, and those people are aware of what's going on. And they realize there's so many things affecting things beyond the financial. When, when you have buffoons leading your country, when you have people you can tell are purposefully doing things that are destructive to your country, then you realize, okay, there's maybe financially things look fine right now, but at some point they won't because everything will fall into line when you've made poor decisions for years and years in every area of life, whether it's regarding our military or, or you know, educational system or the things we see, no, 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 things are not going in the right direction. They might appear to be, and there might be a blue sky today out there, but the storm's coming because you can't continually make poor decisions and, and sacrifice your children on the altar of uh, just all the every newfangled idea and every extreme agenda out there and not at some point go, OK, no, no, we're going to pay the price. So that's why another reason why I think um, I think it's wise to get some gold and silver. Those of you that haven't because I just, I, I've done it myself. I wouldn't tell you ever to do something I have not done personally, but it just, you see all these uncertainties where you just don't know what the future holds. And I know you all are the studying type like I am, and you realize I'm very concerned for many, many reasons. I don't care what this numbers say. I don't care what the statistics are. I'm looking around and observing families falling apart. The church is falling apart. Just communities, not they're not cohesive anymore. They're not People don't hardly talk to each other. People don't even know their own neighbors. And then you have the leadership in almost every institution in America making poor decisions. Maybe some out of ignorance, I believe most purposefully, because they've bought into the lie of Marxism and the idea that America is evil intrinsically and it needs to be done away with so we can have this one world happy utopia, which they're talking more and more about openly today. 10 years ago, that was a nutty conspiracy theory, but it's not anymore the new world order idea. And so, Davey, I think, I mean, I know that's what your father, my father-in-law, um, warned people about for 50 years. Like, yeah, it, it might appear okay, but eventually it's not going to be okay because you can't keep doing what you're doing when it doesn't work and expect things to end okay in the end. But Well, the math, the math becomes very powerful. And, and, and you know, we know that we raised the debt ceiling. As soon as we raised the debt ceiling, it wasn't six weeks later we had added six to eight hundred billion to the number. So, so we're above thirty-two and change today. As interest rates have come up, the interest component on the national debt we're on track for a trillion-dollar interest payment this year. Which means that between what we had committed to and didn't have the money for, so traditional deficit spending. On top of that, the trillion dollars in, in interest payments, which we didn't have the money for, we are not in a recession and we're on track for a $2 trillion deficit this year. We're not in a recession and we're on track for a $2 trillion. You throw us into recession and, and sort of the engine of growth grinds to a halt or slows significantly, we could be at three, three and a half trillion depending on how slow the economy were to get. So, I mean, and this is the new normal. The new normal is, well, we don't have it, we'll just spend it. Ultimately, the bond market recognizes the insanity of that math 
and interest rates go higher, regardless of what the central bank wants. The central bank may say, we want them right here. That's where they'll stay. No, that's not how it works. That's not how it works. They set interest rates in at, at, at the Fed funds level, which is you know today's money, but the market sets interest rates all along that, that future horizon. And so as, as you get to two year, 10 year, 20 year, 30 year paper, the market says, nope, interest rates have to be higher. Mortgage rates queue off of the 10-year treasury, right? So if the 10-year treasury is now at six or seven percent, your mortgage rates are nine or ten percent. And 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 again, we're just talking we're talking about being in something of a wily coyote moment right now. Yeah, you, know, you go back to real estate. Uh, real estate prices are high. Why are real estate prices high with, with interest rates having come up? The National Association of Home Builders this week. Positive. Everything's good. Why? Because they're selling new homes. The, the, the reason why we have home prices stuck at a pretty high level is because the folks who refinanced at two, three, two and a half to four percent, they can't move. They don't want to move because to move means that if they move to the same equivalent home someplace else, they're going to double their payment. That's right. So, so all of the used, call it used inventory, is off the market. And it's the first time we've had this happen in decades. Used inventory is off the market. The only thing that's getting bought is the new inventory. Any surprise that the NAH, NAHB is happy? Yeah, National Association of Home Builders, they've never had it so good because all of that extra volume that would have been going to used homes in the secondary market has to come to a new home because nobody wants to move, yeah. right? So we've got this artificial supply and demand thing going on and, and, it, and it covers over the fact that we're already over the ledge. Again, Wiley Coyote, you remember him in the cartoon. He gets way out there and it's perfect. Nothing's happening until he looks down and then it's over, right? And I feel that way both with the real estate market and with the US stock market. And I'm not trying to be, you know, negative Nancy or, you know, but, but the reality is we're already seeing slowing in the economy. We're not quite to recession, but all those leading economic indicators, 14 months in a row, suggest. We got a recession coming. The, the only argument amongst economists has been, is it going to be a bad one or a not so bad one, right? right? Their, their track record so far is not great. So do your own thinking, do your own planning in, in that respect. But to your point on gold, it's a reserve asset. It's a reserve asset. You know, I, I look at gold almost the same way I look at date night. I'm putting away relational and emotional reserves for life. Life is not always beautiful. Life is not always pretty. Life is not always easy. We've been married decades. We know that. Having reserves that you can draw on are really, really important. How you store those reserves are really, really important. The reason why you deposit to the love bank is so that in that day of crisis, you're able to work through and and and, and move forward, right? There's, there is no crisis we can't overcome if we have adequate reserves. One of the things that you look at from the standpoint of international economics is what are the currency reserves of a country? Because if they run out of currency reserves, that's when they're bankrupt, right? So, But if they have enough currency reserves and they go into an economic crisis, so it's a tough time. It's, it's, it's the ebb in the ebb and flow cycle. How big a deal is it? I need to know what their reserves are. As soon as they run out of reserves, now you're talking about a real crisis. Now you're talking about 
riots in the streets. Now you're talking about like, so th this notion of reserves, it applies at every level of life, whether it's emotional reserves, whether it's currency reserves for a country or for a family, what do you have in terms of reserves? A, a financial asset that is outside of the financial system, which can be brought right back into the financial system as and when you want it to be, this is the role of gold for 5,000 years. All it is is money. It's just a superior form of money, one that can't be tinkered with or destroyed by PhDs who think they've got a, a, a better way, a smarter way, a more intelligent way. Right. It's really basic. Yeah. It's that reserve which keeps you whole. And when you need it, you're glad you have it. That's right. And when when we know that they're printing that extra two trillion or more a year to pay the bills, and that's going nowhere except up, even from their own acknowledgement, uh, they're going to just keep spending more and more, then you know the value of the dollars going down. The one thing you talked about last time, and it's important for people to remember, gold really in reality doesn't ever go up in value or down in value. It can be artificially suppressed or inflated, um, but it's it just has a value. And it will buy the same thing 2000 years ago, it'll buy today. And I think you said 300 loaves of bread at one time. So that's what it just always bought or, or a nice outfit and clothing and, and a dinner out and all that stuff. So the, the reason I think gold is going to go up um, is because the dollar is going down. <laughs> so, right. so it You're just takes more right. of your, yeah. Why does a Corvette today cost $75,000? The year I was born, a brand new Corvette was $3,200 for a 1965 Corvette. And now it's $75,000. Did the Corvette get more expensive? No, it did not. It's the exact same amount of labor and work that goes in that and metals and leather and all that stuff. It just, the dollar became worth less and less each year. So now they say, well, you have to pay us more of those things for the same thing. We, we don't like those things. They, they don't have much value. And so that's the only reason people, you have to understand that. So you don't ever buy gold to get rich or anything. Okay. Every now and then you will be the beneficiary of these artifacts. Once they start going, when people get in, they maybe then it even goes higher than it should. And that's a good time to sell when, it, when it, the hype just makes it go so high. But it always has a solid base of value that has never changed and it never will change. And I know it won't change as a Christian because it tells us that in heaven, the streets are paved with gold. And that tells me very clearly gold will always be precious. It will always have tremendous value because it wouldn't be ever at some point, oh, it's not worth anything. And then that's what how God kind of defined heaven for us. So it's it's again, it's just a wise thing. If you can afford to, if you have, you know, X percent of your money, I'm just going to put in that to be safe. And then you can still do other things. I think it's wise to get a lot of things right now. Wait for the crash and whether you want to buy some more real estate or want to buy some more stocks at a low price that then that's the time to do it. But um, anyway, Dave, talk about how they could get a hold of you all and some of the things you could provide, just information-wise, no pressure, yeah. but information if you're thinking, I should at least look into that possibility. Right. Well, I mean, as as you know, we've we've been in the metals business for 50 years, yep. five decades, and it's it's a it's an industry that is um it's not an easy one to navigate because frankly, there's there's not the rules without. There is no regulatory body like there is in the securities industry, like the National Association of Securities Dealers, NASD or SEC. So the question is, who are you working with and do they have the rules within? In other words, sort of a, a guide point um, for, for the way that they handle client relationships. 
we just had the opportunity to spend some time with some of our competitors. And, and it made me a little bit upset because the, the lack of integrity within our industry is, is a real disappointment. But it's not a surprise because it's just a reflection of a larger culture. Um, 50 years, we've been able to take care of clients. We've been able to innovate. And, and whether it's having precious metals in an IRA or having the equivalent of a savings account, we created something called Vaulted. Um, where you can have both gold and just in the last week to two weeks, we've we've introduced silver as well. The beauty of the vaulted program is that it allows you to save at whatever scale you want in the physical metal. And you're getting the economy of scale of a larger bar. So you can buy a portion of a kilo bar, you can buy a gold or a portion of a thousand ounce silver bar. And, and, and if you want to buy 10 ounces, you're going to ba basically pay a very small fee above the silver price, but you're getting to maximize your dollar exposure to, to, to those ounces, as opposed to buying a one ounce coin, which, you know, even today you're seeing premiums just ridiculous. You, you what, Prices are way too high on the small, small product. So look at vaulted as, as a savings alternative, um, Look at, at 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 having metals in an IRA. It's a great way to diversify your retirement savings. And again, if you look at it as sort of a reserve, how many ounces of gold, just do the math. How many years of bread do I want to put on the table? It's a great way of looking at it. You know, if, if, if one ounce buys 300 loaves of bread, basically one ounce, it's a very meager existence, I understand. But one ounce gives you surety for that year. So you want to buy... 20 years of surety, that's that's an interesting way of, of looking at your retirement account and utilizing those resources. There are some strategies trading between gold and silver. There's some arbitrage opportunities because sometimes one's undervalued relative to the other. Being able to do that inside of a retirement account is also very, very powerful for what we call compounding ounces. Um, Curtis, the best way to find us, McIlvaney.com is is the, and you can put this in the, in the show notes, yep. but McIlvaney.com and if you go to forward slash agenda, um, that that's a that's you know just let us know where you came from. Um, if you're interested, we I to mention the bank ratings earlier. If you're interested in finding out your your current financial institutions and and their security, interest rates may be coming down, but as as as, as you said and as we talked about three months ago, these are trends that are not measured in months or quarters or years. They're trends that are measured in decades. And one of my big influences, she worked at, at Smith Barney years ago, and I used to read her research. Um, Louise Yamada and Alan Shaw were head of the technical department at, uh, at Smith Barney. And she was influenced for me because she painted this picture of, of how interest rates work. She was the one that, that mapped it out, 22 years being the shortest cycle in US interest rates, the longest now being 40 years because interest rates came down from 1982 to 2020, 2022, right? So, so a 40-year trend, what I'm saying is, is when they turn, they turn and they move directionally for a long, long time. I think this is probably one of the most important things your listeners can take away because it influences the pricing of every asset class. And this is not a straight line higher. But we're going to have this sort of jagged movement up and down and up and down with each move higher being a little bit higher before than, than the move before and each low being higher than, 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 than the lows before. Interest rates are moving higher for years to come. 
if not decades to come. Luis Yamada just came out with another research piece saying the same thing. Yep, interest rates have turned. They're moving higher for a long time now. That means that you've got headwinds in the stock market, headwinds in the bond market, and the pressure that we saw in March within the banks is pressure that's not going away. You know, because they're sitting on all of these treasury bills and mortgage-backed securities, as interest rates move higher, the value of their bond portfolios are going lower. The most recent number for, for Bank of America is a $100 billion loss in their bond portfolio. $100 billion loss in Bank of America's bond portfolio because interest rates have come up and the value of that portfolio is shrinking. If interest rates do in fact continue to march higher, does that become 150? Does that become a $200 billion bond portfolio loss? I mean, at what point are you talking about the solvency of Bank of America being in question, right? So, so keep in mind the significance of something as boring as a rate of interest, but it's powerful. It's powerful. It's going to reprice everything over time, over time. And right now, there's not a panic in that respect. Calm has come back to the banking system. This is the time when you make the best decisions because you can do it without emotion leading, right? Be thoughtful about where you have your resources. Do you have too much in the banking system? Call us, get a bank rating. Again, you can request it. We've got a little form online. Request a bank rating. We'll get back with you and, and, and just tell you, is it an A, B, C? What's the quality of their portfolio? How much hot money is coming in and out of the bank? You want to know there's 25 categories of strength and weakness within, within each of your banks that you should be aware of. You've put your hard-earned money with them. You should know what risk you're taking. Everything is just so fragile. And I know you people know that because you just look around, you can see the fragility in just everything in our culture and our country today. The, the Bank of International Settlements did a study on this, and they're concerned. The Bank of International Settlements is kind of like the central bank to all central banks. They're out of Basel, Switzerland. And um, $250 trillion in non-financial debt is, is, is the number that they come up with globally, $250 trillion. Right now, because a lot of that debt is fixed and has yet to, to, to come due, it's still fixed at lower numbers. So we have yet to see the full impact of having to move that money into a new financial obligation, roll the paper over, refinance, if you will. We, we're, we're facing this refinance event on $250 trillion. Assuming that interest rates stay where they're at today, don't go any higher, don't necessarily go any lower. As we refinance that $250 trillion to today's numbers, you're talking about an $8 trillion interest tab, which is equal to the entire GDP of the third and fourth largest countries in the world, Germany and Japan. That's the problem with debt. And it's not just our country, which is buried. It's, it's again, all almost globally. every business and then individual also, and then globally. So that's why we know the chickens are going to come home to roost at some point um, economically, because you can't do that. that. That game you can't play forever, just getting deeper and deeper and deeper. When you're digging a hole and you keep digging, you're never going to get out of that hole. It's not going to happen. You have to stop digging and start filling the hole in. So, um, yeah, so, well, Dave, I, I appreciate this update. I think it's important every three or four months for us to do this, just to, to wake people to the reality of, from a financial point of view, that a lot of things are going on. Um, again, we'll have all the contact info below if anybody's interested in contacting McIlvaney to um, 
just to get information from them on whatever you might be interested in or to have them look at what you're doing and see if it makes sense. But McIlvaney.com forward slash agenda. Um, You know, we've got the weekly commentary. We've been doing that podcast for 16 years. We do hard asset insights every Saturday. So it's a five page summary of what we do in our wealth management team, kind of what's happening within the financial markets as it pertains to our portfolio of infrastructure, global natural resources, precious metals, real estate exposures, all really basic, solid stuff. Um, and then Credit Bubble Bulletin is a 20-page paper for anybody who wants to go into the deep end. We do this every week. I mean, we're creating tons of content so that people can look at the world, see it more clearly, and be making the wisest possible decisions in light of the changing landscape. And as it changes, the information changes, what we process is different, and you have to make a different set of decisions. So while it looks somewhat bleak on a global basis, and not quite as bleak in the U.S. yet, from an economic standpoint, I think there is a tremendous amount of opportunity in 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 what we're describing, uh, Curtis. Because as as you see people caught on a wrong foot, it means that there will be resources that are brought to market at at discounted prices. All you need to do is preserve value. You don't have to take high risk today to 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 win in in this environment. Going back to your football days, sometimes the best offense is a good defense. If you've got a good defense, man, there's a lot that you can accomplish, right? And I think that describes the role of gold in a portfolio today. Make sure you've got a solid defense because you'll be able to put the offensive team on the field at the right time. And you'll be able to do that with a resource which has been preserved while the rest of the world has come under pressure. We're not, this is not a chicken little, this is not a chicken little message. This is just math. If interest rates go higher, the stock of debt that we have, again, Bank of International Settlements said it best, $250 trillion of non-financial debt. It's consequential when interest rates go higher. We can't we can't pay the bill. That has an impact on currencies. That has an impact on stocks. That has an impact on the bond market. So, so asset preservation has got to be rule number one. And then redeploying that capital at some future point, whether that's a year from now or five years from now. We don't know. We don't have a crystal ball. It's, it's very productive. If you're thinking intergenerationally, if you're thinking about what happens not only today, but tomorrow, I think you're fully engaged and you're being proactive. To be able to do that now in a moment of calm where the markets are not falling to pieces, I think that's prudent. Yeah, no, that's great. Well, David, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Great to be back. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview and learned some things, and hopefully it will make you more prepared for the coming months and years ahead. Um, I do think if you're interested, now is probably a decent time to consider getting some gold and silver. I've done that. My boys are doing that. Just because tomorrow is so uncertain, we just don't know what's going to happen, but we can see there's a lot of things going on that aren't good and that God is judging our country, and we have so many enemies within and without, and just so many different things that it's it's a way to preserve some of our wealth that God has given us so we can steward it. If we ever have to go somewhere else, we can take it with us or to pass down to our children or buy and sell with it if they start implementing the totalitarian digital currency system or whatever it might be. But I just, I... I wanted to give you this information 
and knowing that they're going to take good care of you if you decide to do that. And if you don't have the funds to do that or are not interested in doing that, no problem at all. I hope you learned uh, from the interview some things that will help you be more informed about what's going on. Our verse for this week is Proverbs 27, verse 1. It's a good one as we humbly look at the future with a teachable spirit of knowing we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. We try to judge it the best we can. We try to be wise in preparing for an uncertain future. But in the bottom line, God knows tomorrow and he knows what's going to happen. So here's the verse. Boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. We need to always seek to be very humble very teachable and very kind and loving as we speak truth to others because we know that the truth itself is what pierces the heart of man and convinces them of the truth and their pierces their conscience but i appreciate you being there uh, thank you uh, it's a blessing doing this for you each week and until next week god bless you